Welcome to the Pet Photographers Club with your hosts, Caitlin and Kirsty. Tune in as experts share their insights to help grow your business with higher sales, creative marketing, and kick arse business strategies. Now on to the show. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Kirsty of Bits of Bernard Photography. And I'm Caitlin of Ragamuffin Pet Photography. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 4 of the Pet Photographers Podcast. Our guest today is a self-taught photographer and digital artist who walked away from a career in marketing and design to pursue his passion for creative pet portraiture. He is best known for his signature headshot style of dog photography and the whimsical paper hats that feature in many of his portraits. It's JB Shepherd of the Pup Trait Studio. Welcome to the Pet Photographers Club, JB. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my my career path has been absolutely insane. Um, so I... <laughs> I went to school uh, basically to play lacrosse. I mean, college. Like I had a scholarship. Went there, showed up, uh, realized that I didn't want to do ball drills for another four years, and dropped out. <laughs> started playing rugby, um, which I loved. Uh, okay, <laughs> but you know, wasn't playing at a level where you know there's a lot of jobs laying out there for me, um, and uh, kind of had to figure out a major. So, like most people that don't know what they're doing, I, I uh, fell into psychology. Um, so it meant I ended up having to take a lot of math. Uh, we did like, I think it was like 24 credits of statistics just to get out of there. Um, <laughs> yeah, and no one, no one signs up for psychology. Like I want to do math, you know, like no one's there for that. We would have been in a different building. Um, but I got out, you know, and did what, uh, most kids do, you know, that have no idea. And I, you know, signed up for grad school and got a sales job. And then I, my loans all started hitting at like, pretty much the same time. And, mm-hmm. um, realized that I didn't need more loans and the sales gig was doing okay. And, uh, got promoted a bunch of times and then ended up getting laid off just due to like a regulatory shift. So we were looking for gigs I had a partner at the time. He was also laid off. It was another benefit of that is all the people you're used to working with and making these amazing things. You're like, we're all looking for work at the same time. So <laughs> you're not luring anyone away from a job. You're just kind of going for it. So we opened up a small digital agency and we started doing, um, Mostly identity work, so logos, names, you know, URLs. That turns into websites. Next thing you know, we're doing TV commercials, like animated spots. Uh, you know, it was a lot of fun. We've worked with some pretty big names, uh, but it was just always a struggle because you know the world's getting smaller and smaller. I mean, we're we're talking right now and you know live, and uh, mm-hmm. we couldn't probably be any further away from each other. <laughs> <laughs> You got to figure, you know, you're taking to a lot of competition when it comes to building something for the web. So we did that for a while and it was, it was great. Um, And it just became obvious that like, I kind of needed to do something different. You know, I was very lucky. My partner um, who's actually uh, went to school to become an animator. Very, very talented guy, uh, Sean McCloskey. And I I remember one project in particular working with a a concrete distributor and I'm looking at this and I'm like, what are you doing? And he was just building a, a, like a five gallon bucket. Like one of those ones you see like at Home Depot, the big ones with the handles at like yeah. any work site. Yeah. So he's <laughs> he's making one of those in like 3D Studio Max. And I'm looking at it, I'm like, I know how much you make. I know how much time this is taking. And I was like, how long have you been on this? And it's like, well, you know, only a day. And then we got 12 more hours to render. I know how much we're making off the project. I was like, how much are buckets? How much are cameras? Okay, we're going to figure this out. <laughs> and so the first thing I started shooting were these buckets. It was, uh, okay. it was the, the stupidest <laughs> way to get into this, but it had a direct yeah. path into like commercial work. Mm-hmm. 
and I started doing more stuff on the side. I'm a big believer in that. Like if you have a job, like do what you love, but whatever you do, you're going to learn to hate. Like if you're doing it well, <laughs> right? Like, well, I see what you're saying. <laughs> what it is like, no matter what industry you're in, you could be like, we work, this is a pretty cushy job. Yeah. You know? Like we work with puppies. If you don't like pets and you're doing this, like, please leave. You're like in you're the in the wrong, wrong gig. <laughs> yeah. You are standing in the wrong room. So, you know, even that said, like we all have those days when you're working oh, with yeah. clients and you're like, I don't know if I should call animal control on you or just walk away from this or like just give this dog a giant hug, you know. Um, I, I have um, gone through stages of having in my office a little sign that says I love my job because I do I do love my job, but mm-hmm. it can be easy once anything is a job right. or it just become a job. And then you have yeah. to like remind yourself of like, oh, I'm a professional pet photographer. It is not the worst job in the world. <laughs> I find the key to happiness, and I started doing this with copywriting, was to stay in the same lane um, as a medium, mm-hmm. but change up the use. And so with photography, like if I'm just shooting buckets all day, I need to go and do something different. So I started working in a complete opposite direction, started doing a lot of portraiture. So when did you introduce dogs then during this time? Yeah, so I I started doing the more like artful portrait stuff and I have a good buddy of mine um that reached out to me and she had looked online and was looking for professional pet photographers but a lot of them are treating it kind of like newborn photography um which is fine some people see their dogs like you know infants and they expect them to be cute but she that wasn't her like she's um I don't know if you guys had this I'm sure everywhere um kind of like, I wouldn't say hipster, but like definitely hip, like the more mid-century retro, like tattoos, like you're (laughs) chill. Really, this client, like really good friends of mine before, um, very cool person, very slick look. And uh, she approached me and she was like sobbing. She had this great Dane who was this beautiful, beautiful dog. He was almost like 200 pounds. He was, I still haven't seen a dog this size. And I've worked with a lot of dogs since, um, to put the dog down. He had developed this like Aww. softball sized tumor on his forepaw. <laughs> yeah. It was really, really awful, but she wanted to do something and she had seen my work working with people and wanted to do something that was a little bit more stylized. I was like, you know, what? yeah, I'll give it a shot. And I had just lost my dog prior to that. And it was, you know, really just a traumatic, awful, emotional time, um, which, you know, I guess is what it is. But, you know, that's that's the gig, right? Like you're trying to the, to, to make the, the best of, of really are some of the worst situations in people's lives. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, we did that. And, you know, I did another one. And then I did a series that uh, we were shooting um, rescue dogs around different landmarks around Baltimore. And then I did another one just working with pit bulls. So with these, the pit bull shoots, the rescue dogs around Baltimore, Mm -hmm. is this private work that you're doing with clients or is this work that you're- This was all pro bono fundraiser, just on the side, trying to keep my sanity work, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, please- So by fundraiser, you mean you were then selling the prints or- Yeah, so we were selling prints- Taking dogs that had been rescued in different ways, selling the prints, and then funneling that money back to rescues. It wasn't a lot of money. Um, you know, honestly, I wasn't pricing my prints appropriately. Looking back, I was selling 
was printing on canvases. Embarrassing to look back, uh, made a lot of mistakes, but we had, you know, even with all those mistakes, we saw some success. So I, I opened the puppet studio and I was doing this kind of as a laugh. That was the thing I was focusing on because it was non-competitive and I enjoyed it. So we thought we would do it. And all of a sudden that thing ended up being like, I, I came up with this completely new pricing structure for my prints, started really kind of throwing things out there, taking a chance on what I thought was the right way to do it rather than what I knew I needed to do and mm-hmm. to like to keep clients. And sure enough, like clients started biting on, on that new pricing model. And, uh, here we are. And are you still using, um, that same stressing pricing structure that you introduced five years ago, JB, or has it evolved since then? It, it's evolved a little bit, uh, but it's basically the same. So what I do is mm-hmm. I, I try not to charge any session fees. So I used to, when I first started shooting, it was, I'm going to charge a session fee because I want to make sure I get paid for my time because I'm worth it. And yeah. you know, I'll give people the prints because I don't want to be dealing with the headaches of like file maintenance and stuff like that. And what I realized was that it's backwards, right? Like, cause people don't mm-hmm. know you, they might see your work, but they don't know what you're going to do for them. Especially when you're working with dogs, like everyone knows, don't work with dogs, don't work with kids. They're unpredictable, you know? And so, you know, <laughs> I, I put the, the onus on me and I was like, okay, I'm going to go out and do it. So I got to take, I got to charge something up front, um, just to make sure that, um, you know, I'm not getting a bunch of people in, in line that are just going to waste my time. But I, I wanted to put it on the the end. And, you know, part of that is the trust you just mentioned, but also like taking it from womb to tomb, right? Like seeing the final product and be like, this is the end piece. Like, I want you to get this piece in your house. I print all the time. I know how this works. I'm going to do this. So it works. It looks amazing for you. And, you know, I don't want you to take a print print it, you know, get it printed yourself, get the cheap one. Cause that's all you think you can afford. Cause I've already bled you dry on the sitting fees. And then that thing just sits in your closet somewhere, you know, packing up mm-hmm. dust or looking terrible because you got a group on for some cheap, you know, canvas print somewhere. Um, so we've changed that a little bit since, uh, mostly that's my rates have gone up. Um, which it, my advice to anyone, like if you're slow, raise your rates. Like, I don't know why that works. I won't even try to speculate, but anytime I'm slow, I raise my rates and suddenly I get a, a whole new, better batch of clients come in. Um, and uh, we added a uh, 30 day cutoff for that just because uh, I don't like putting people in a pre- like high pressure situation. So okay. like when we do our, pr- uh, uh, like print consultations, like where we actually go over the proofs and like try to put the orders together. I never take credit card fee, like info over the phone. I always send invoices over through PayPal and mm-hmm. with that people can like decide for themselves when they're ready, if it's the right thing. And we just kind of negate any buyer's remorse from the entire situation. Um, but I found that there were, what well, wasn't common, there were a few people that would just drag that out. Like literally for years, I had a few people, yeah. we first started shooting that just came back to me this week. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like when I say years, like that's not an exaggeration. Um, and wow. yeah, so now we cap it. You got 30 days since proofing and then we'll basically treat your uh, sitting fee as a deposit. And I think people really respond to that. But I think you've got a proofing section on your website. So are you doing in-person sales and then also online proofs or are you just doing the online proofs? I do everything online. I, okay. mm-hmm. I, I do like my booking is online. I use this great little um, widget called Bookly and I, I do all the proofing on there, all of our invoices aren't handled through our website, but we do that all online. It's just, it's so much easier. 
it is more expensive. I mean, I don't take any cash, so you know, I am paying an extra almost four percent on every transaction. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, I feel like the government would have taken that in taxes anyway. So you know, <laughs> six in one hand, right? Yeah. So walk us through then, because in terms of our guests, it is we have less people who do what it sounds like you're doing with the online sales and that sort of thing. Most. Typically, um, we hear about the in-person sales process. So I would love to hear, I guess I'd love to hear the whole client experience. So say someone's interested in booking with Pop Trait Studios. What's the first thing they do and how does it sort of evolve from there? So we get most of our stuff. I mean, I think this is common to most studios today. Mm-hmm. You're either a referral, in which case you're going to call me directly, or you're going to be sent to my website. And you're going to peek around. You're going to do your research. You're probably looking at my reviews. When you're ready to go, you can either call me. And I'll walk through the session or you go directly through the sitting fee. I charge a fairly low sitting fee for our rates. So, um, and I say that like our sales, to ta- sales tax here is only 6%. Um, and I charge, it's not uncommon for us to charge more in sales tax than in deposits up front. Um, so it's not a huge gamble for most people that are like looking at it to like shell out a hundred bucks if they know that they're probably going to end up spending, you know, two, three, four grand at the, the back end of it. That we go through that. Our sessions are usually, um, you know, an hour and a half, two hours long. Like I try to work with only one dog per. Um, and I try to explain this to clients like, because I don't charge sitting fees. Like it ends up being the same regardless of whether they bring six dogs in at once or they bring them out individually. So yeah. it's really just about mitigating distractions and making sure that you're allowing the dogs to, you know, to really focus and to, and that's how we're able to get away with the hats. Like a lot of people think that that's photoshopped or that we're like, you know, photo, like taking the leashes out or anything like that. But we actually have them sitting there. We frame them up. I don't do a lot of cropping. I try to crop in camera because we're printing so large and I use a, mm-hmm. a standard, you know, 35 frame, 35 millimeter uh, full frame DSLR. So you don't really have a lot of wiggle room if you're printing to like 30 by 40 on a regular basis mm-hmm. with that. So it's a really kind of a, like a tightrope shoot. Um, and I put an uh, hour padding before and after with that. So, you know, it's basically a four hour block for every session. So we can do yeah. two, sometimes three a day if we're orchestrating it very carefully, but usually it's just one. Mm-hmm. Um, for every hour I spend in the studio, you know, we're usually doing two, maybe three hours of editing on the back end. And then I deliver the proofs. The proofs are always like ready to go print wise. So you're doing your full. Um JB pup trait style edit mm-hmm. for the proofs. I am. Now that's, that's, that's my standard edits, right? Mm-hmm. That's what I know, like what I think will work well. Yeah. Uh, and I'm only doing, I only deliver like six to 12 proofs like per session. Yeah. Um, uh, sometimes we'll go a little over that if it's required. Usually not though. And the reason for that is it, it causes like decision paralysis and clients. And, you know, there's usually one or two, like amazing shots per set. Like I'll burn 400 frames and it's still down to those two. Like, you know what they are. I'll add more just because I think most people still have in the back of their head, they want to have options. They want to have like this uh, assumption of agency, but I, I, you know, I don't, I don't really think that that's necessary at the end of the day. So we work through that. If someone has more creative ideas, like if they want me to swap out a background or if um, we want to do uh, like something that's a little bit more creative, like on the composite end, like I do, 
most of the stuff I'm known for is the paper hats. I think there's a little bit more artistry in that just from being practical effects, but I still do a fair bit of business just in the composites. And I try not to do uh, realistic composites. Like I know there are some people that do like the Napoleon style painted portraits with dog heads on there. And those are cool, but like, I don't know. I feel like they're just kind of done. I like to use more of like an exploratory process where we kind of go for like this like surreal idea that's more suggestive um, and accurate to like how you feel about the dog rather than accurately portraying what the dog is. How much input does a client have into the conceptual ideas that you're creating for each portrait? So it, it depends, right? So, you know, most of our hats are things that I'm making. Our hats take like they're little, but like I use like a four step paper mache process. So they take some time to do. Uh, if someone wants me to make a custom hat, I can do it. Every once in a while, we'll get something like that where like, you know, they want have a specific idea and I can run with that in a different way. Uh, we do make some, some pretty funky stuff. And I, I feel like I do a good job of translating those like vague wishes into something more tangible, but I bill hourly for all of that. And honestly, I think that's it's just something that people uh, kind of get, you know, pushed off on. You're the one creating normally um, the different concepts, which guys, if you haven't checked out at this stage, um, JB's work yet, yeah, definitely head over to the Pop Trade Studios website so you can see what we're talking about. So it's some really whimsical, some really different, surreal work here, um, but that's that's based less on client briefs that they're bringing you and you're just sort of running with what you think will suit the dog is am i getting that right yeah so like i'll make a few hats like ahead of time mm-hmm. i try to have a, a pretty good selection at the studio and we can have when the owners come in they'll they'll pick and choose which one they want to work with um but beyond that like it's really the dogs right so our best shots are when the dog's no longer looking at us and they're kind of like engaging with the hat right? Like while it's falling off, that's where you get these crazy impossible angles. And that's where like that personality comes out. So at that time, it's not about me. It is about just the dog doing their thing and me just kind of setting up the scene so that it works. I mean, I don't even really change up the color scheme. Most of the photos you see with me are either pure white background. I use a material called Translum um, from Savage Paper. I don't know if you guys have seen this. It's like semi-opaque, so you can actually light through it, which gives me like that pure white shadowless background right out of the camera. Um, And then I use – it also gives you that nice soft glow around the fur. Um, And then I'll use another material they make. It's just just like a black vinyl that really hides light. And so if you see something dark, like that's why because you get that pitch black look. So – it's it really is just kind of setting the scene and then letting them take it from there. Actually, I do want to before we keep going along with your client experience process. I've I've realized that we've sort of jumped or just mentioning paper hats and it, which makes perfect sense because we've seen all your paper hat portraits. Um, but it's going to be really random for someone who's not familiar with your work. Why? What does paper hats have to do with pet photography? So can we take a pause in your client experience and do a little side story now? And can you kind of chat to us about about the paper hat series, how it started, how it's sort of now become such a big part of your business and all of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So I started like kind of actually going back to like what I was talking about with the composites. Like everyone's seen those photos, right? Like the photoshopped ones of the dogs in the fancy like medieval mm, or baroque style yeah. like dress. And you know, I wanted to do something with that, but with like practical effects. So we went out, and uh, I'm very fortunate um, that my mother-in-law is a very talented seamstress, and she was going to help me put this together. And we 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 actually made some really elaborate. Um, un, like embarrassingly expensive costumes for dogs <laughs> that were pretty flexible. Uh, they look great. Like, and uh, we started working on the rough collar, um, and that it was just the materials were like super expensive. It's a very fragile process, very sophisticated cuts and folds and seams that you need to like work with this. So before we started working with the real materials, we started working with newspaper, mm-hmm. and uh, we realized when I like when we saw that, I'm like that's that's what this is like as cool as it is to imagine your dog in, you know, 15th, 17th century Europe as like some noble person, like it's not real, right? Like it doesn't feel very dog. Yeah. Um, if dogs had their own, you know, feudal society, they would be, it would be junkyard based. Like if you watch a dog, like my dog, George, he loves string, right? Like he, he doesn't care what the string's made out of or how expensive the string is. He just likes the texture and the way it feels, you know, covered in drool, you know, sticking out of his mouth. He runs around with the stuff everywhere. It's really disgusting, but that's his, his thing. So, you know, when it comes to dogs, they're, they're very big on found materials. And I was like, that's what we should be doing. And it, it became really obvious when we saw that first like newspaper rough come out because it's it felt like if dogs actually had their own society, this was what it looked like. And we kind of realized from there that like if you take that idea to its inevitable conclusion, that is dogs in a nutshell. Like whether you're talking about how dogs from breeders work or even like how you go about finding a rescue animal or adopting a dog out of a shelter, like that's what it's about. Like finding this animal that like you're taking it out of a situation and you're giving it new life and like a little bit of like TLC, right? Like a little bit of training and and just general care. Like they can turn into these amazing companions and that's, that's what the hats are about. Like we're raiding recycling bins. We're raiding, you know, different like places to find these materials and you know with just a little bit of effort we're taking what was literally trash that somebody had thrown away and we're turning it into something that's you know more fantastic and whimsical and you know i think that's it at the end in a nutshell what dogs are all about mm-hmm. especially rescue dogs actually so how did yeah. um how did the paper hat concept then play into the work that you're doing with what what's the rescue in Baltimore that you so uh, at the time I was working with a group called Bell's Bully Buddies yeah. um, great rescue uh, they're a non-profit 100% like volunteer operated they're very lateral in their organization where like the founders start it they make sure everything are running but like the fosters themselves are take a very active role in the group making sure that things are taken care of and uh they they brought this dog out and he had these just two giant testicles bouncing <laughs> behind him. And if you've worked with rescues for any extent of time, you know how weird yeah. that is because uh, yeah. at least in the US, like it's illegal to adopt yeah, a dog no, out it is that's intact. Yeah. yeah, I think that's pretty common um, with good reason. And so I'm sitting there, I'm looking at this this lady. I'm like, is this, you're with the group? Like who? And she starts explaining to me and I verified this. They'd actually given him, he wasn't healthy enough to go through the neutering process. So they gave him a uh, fast deference blockage. Like he was like some 
55 year old businessman that was tired <laughs> of having kids, you know, like non-invasive thing. And, you know, this guy, he's like all chewed up. His ears are all taggered. And you can just tell, like, he came from a rough spot and that, like was just so happy to be out of there and was just such a sweetheart to anyone that was there that, you know, he could trust. And we threw this fancy little hat on him and uh, looked like a proper little gentleman. But um, it was just such a really like, like kind of like wake you up type moment where I'm like, I need to do more to help this group than I can. So did the paper hat series that you're doing with your clients now that mm-hmm. did originally start with your work with um, Bella's bully buddies, right? Yeah. I think it's a good idea. Like if you're looking for a concept, nonprofit work is fantastic. Like the pro bono stuff, it gives you an opportunity to, because you don't have clients, demanding that you do things a certain way. It allows you to stretch yourself creatively and to try to test new things because you don't have to tell them what works and what doesn't work. You can go out and just try a bunch of ideas and see what happens, what sticks, um, and you can sell it. It also makes it easier to promote your stuff because no one wants to talk about you, the professional. Everyone mm-hmm. wants to talk about these dogs that you're helping, which makes sense because you know who, who cares about me, right? Like I, I can stand on my own two feet. I can do advertising, stuff like that. But if I work with this group... You know, they need the help. They're getting the benefit of it. And that sounds super selfish to say out loud. But. No, no, no. no. <laughs> it's the reality of it. it it's a, it's a um, icing on the cake yeah. that it, it does help with your marketing and getting your work seen, which side note, your work is everywhere all over the internet. So it really is. The two ideas aren't unrelated, right? Like it, it's only natural that like once that starts taking off in popularity and once you've, you've come up with an idea that's worthy of promoting that, you know, that something would translate to your business. Because if you start doing things right, like, you, you know, you're actually going out and making a difference, whether it's creatively or, or, or socially, um, that's where people want to be associated with it. So that's where the clients are coming out. That's where you start getting the traction with, with, um, you know, all the different like press resources and like PR, uh, you know, it's, it's all, you got to kind of look at it holistically. So JB, you just mentioned, um, an idea worthy of promoting. How are your clients finding you now? Well, you know, when you're working online, you're, you're dealing with, with a few different pieces, right? Like, so there's the reputation of your brand and your website. I think that if you're working in like nonprofit spaces, that's going to naturally increase. Um, you're just going to build goodwill, uh, and that raises your profile. Um, it also allows you to start talking about like keywords and you know, more searchable stuff um, to start raising the the ranking of your individual pages. And then you know your more traditional like pay per click and social media advertising that all kind of piggybacks off of that. Like I still spend a lot of money on ads. I treat like personally, I treat my um, my deposit as my ad spend. So. I, I'm uh, like, I get it at minimum, like my deposits change depending on whether I'm on location or if I have to travel or if you're coming to me, the cheapest ones, if you come to me, cause there's, you know, less effort involved, but I, so that, that $99, that is what I spend on advertising. Um, like basically for every session. Yeah. If I spend more than that, I'm doing something wrong, but I, I'm confident enough in my abilities to, to complete a project where I, I basically treat that money as, it's not mine, right? Like that's just the cost of doing business and the cost of keeping the client like happy. 
So when you say ads, are you talking Facebook ads, Instagram ads? Are you talking paper ads? Like what are you, what are you talking about? Google ads? I do a lot of um, Google. Most buyer intent starts on Google. You know, for the products, you can start on Amazon. But when it comes to services, like you're looking at local search for Google uh, or just, you know, uh, I think probably more of a national level for Google searches. So it makes sense to advertise there, especially when you, you factor that you can actually you know, hone in on specific intent and make sure that you're not, you know, advertising on things that sound like your, your, um, your products or people that are, are looking for it. I know one of the biggest things that I've had as a hurdle is that there are more people looking to become a pet photographer than there are people looking for pet photography. Uh, yes. I was just about to ask that actually, because I agree. I think there are less people, at least in Adelaide, searching for a pet photographer than, yeah, that aren't pet photographers, basically. It's because it's a dream job. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> goes back to what we were saying before, yeah. People don't appreciate how, how difficult it is, I think, is part of it. You know, you, I get calls constantly from from students, like, looking for, like, career advice. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, it, it, it's a doable business. I never discourage anyone from, from joining it, but I always make sure that they're at least try to, like, accurately set expectations about how much money there is actually to make and how to like, you know, promote it um, or your business. So um, JP, what are you doing with these Google ads so that people see them? Because I know people aren't searching Adelaide pet photographer. So there's no point in me doing an ad for that. So what I don't think. So what are you running through Google ads that people are actually seeing them that it's obviously working because you're spending all this money continuing to do it. Well, you know, you could argue if I'm spending that much money, it's not working, (laughs) but it really depends. (laughs) (laughs) Writing decent ads, making, testing those, make sure that they're clicking through, um, that you're getting good value for it and then really paying attention to your keywords. So that's kind of a, um, we're saying with the market, this is the, the balancing act, right? Like you have to have, enough volume um, to make it worthwhile. But you also want to make sure that, you know, uh, you're not wasting money on stuff that's not related. Like I don't want to spend ads on people looking for tips on how to do better photography or people looking specifically for paintings. I don't want to look for people that are looking for um, job requests. So like I have like basically one word that I, I look through with my advertising. I used to do a couple of like narrowed it down. I keep narrowing it down to be more and more specific, but my, my, um, negative keyword list is hundreds of words long. Um, okay. just to, I just keep shoving people out of there just cause it's not working. <laughs> if I'm in a situation where I'm in Adelaide and I don't have, I mean, you know, that much volume, I might spend the money, especially if it's not that competitive and you don't have a lot of people actually trying to get in that same space. Test, test, test. And once you have a good control, once you have those numbers in place, that's when you can start ramping it up and really start focusing on, you know, your your particular uh, cost per order. So is all of this, JB, to get you to the top of the first page of Google searches? Is it so that when people are on a related website, you haven't an ad pop up like where are your where are people seeing this um efforts i focus entirely on search so i want to make sure that like if you if you look for dog photography and you're in my zone my ad's going to come up first 
it, unless mm-hmm. I run out of money for the day. But I want that to be there because uh, I know that you know if you look at ads, you know ninety five percent of the tra- or not ninety five, I think it's ninety percent of traffic goes to the first click. I want to make sure I'm at that page, like right at the top of it. I don't want to spend any money on ads. They're coming at the bottom of the page, or if I'm third in a row, I'm going to focus on whatever that that top bulletin is because if I know if I get that. And I have, you know, I've done enough testing. I'm confident enough in the landing page that I'm sending people to, and you know, my photography that if I can get those eyeballs, I can kind of open the doors and, to your point earlier, inform them because I feel like most people either don't know pet photography is a thing, um, and if they do, they're expecting either like owner and pet photography, like they're sitting on Santa's lap, or like something that like it's a little bit softer and and just kind of more of the same like natural like gorilla style i'm gonna crawl around on the ground and and just take photos of dogs so with me doing something that's a little bit more designed that's in studio most people have zero idea that's out there so if i don't if i'm not the first shot up there to kind of set the baseline for what everyone else is looking at then i I may as well not be spending any money so client thinks i want to get my dog photographed they do Mm -hmm. a quick little google search pup trait pops up first they click on it they have a chat with you um or do they normally just book online how much how much sort of inquiry process do you have versus yeah i i think most people that come in just go right through um Mm -hmm. you know i'm one person i think like most photographers like i you know i'm either working or i'm probably not doing like i'm either like focused on what i'm doing i'm not going to take calls when i'm shooting right um yeah so and if i'm out you know having dinner or something i'm not going to feel the call so you know there is a fallback there um but even then like if i do speak with somebody usually like those people it's like a 50 50 shot if they're actually going to sign up because the fact is if they're if they feel the need to talk to me, that means something on my website's not explaining things correctly. So usually with those calls, I'll actually use them kind of as like an instructional format to get ideas about where I'm not answering questions appropriately, mm-hmm. try to get into oh, their shoes. interesting. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Potentially a little bit of client education, but most of the time, any the most of the time your booking process is very well explained throughout the website. So clients just sort of come in through there. Mm-hmm. Um, they come in, they have their session. They have multiple sessions if they have multiple dogs, ideally. Um, you go away, you do your amazing digital artwork, and then they have an online proofing gallery and they're 30 days. What happens there? Are you getting in contact again to chat them through the ordering process or is it sort of just up to them from that stage. Yeah. So when they're at the session, before we leave, I'll, especially if they're a studio, I'll show them the, 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 the mountings and options that we have for prints. We'll see the different, they can see examples of different sizes. And that's part of the reason I don't bring them back is because they've already been here. Like they've seen it. I'm showing it to them. Uh, and it's a good opportunity to do that. And I, I schedule the calls then for our proof consults. And I usually, that does two things. One, it sets a timeline in their head for when this should be, working it also sets a timeline for me because then i you know i i like most people like to procrastinate and i'll just keep thinking about edits rather than doing the edits um which is (laughs) functional like i always sounds familiar (laughs) yeah i think everyone does that i mean you upload them you back them up to make sure you don't lose them and you'll take a look but then you want to go and sit down because it takes time to do them especially you're doing a series you want to make sure that you've got some consistency through the set so 
Um, I'll spend a little bit of time thinking about it. And then when it comes to executing, just kind of knock them out and get them up there. So um, uh, once we do that call, everything kind of hinges, um, I think, really just on the print size. So we get people focused on that. I like to get sorry. people. Oh, JB, can I just, sorry, I'm just going to jump in for one second. So, sorry, you have the shoot. At the end of the shoot, you lock in, or at some point during the shoot, you lock in a time for a call. Mm-hmm. Then between the shoot and the call, do they get the online proofing gallery sent or that gets sent at the same time as the call no 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 i send it beforehand that's a good question okay so they have Sorry. time to look over that before you call them and lock in their order over the phone yeah i usually try yeah. to send it over at least like two days prior um you don't want to have it too much time out there uh, but also you know you got to give people a little bit of time to kind of process it and with that, that uh, that's another opportunity to kind of like educate the consumer because you can't feed too much to them up front. You got to kind of like drag them along in a way that, you know, makes sense. So I try to get people to think about the space that they're filling up. And usually if you do that, that kind of steers people away from going too small. Because, um, you know, if you're just looking at numbers, you don't want to spend too little. You don't want to spend too much. You're going to go somewhere in the middle. But very rarely, you know, usually towards the cheaper end, but if you're looking at just the numbers versus like what's in the space, usually the space, like, especially with like TVs now, right? Like if you have a giant 42, 60 inch TV, you can't put an eight inch print next to that. It doesn't make any yeah. sense. Right. So, you know, that's a good way to steer people towards doing the right thing for their space. And then beyond that, we start, I try to get them thinking about the mounting. So I don't do anything with frames. And I don't do novelties or anything like that. I only do um, basically I do plain prints, die bond mounted, the very clean edges. They're raised off of the, um, the back wall because of the wooden blocks. So it gives it this really modern look that just looks great in pretty much any setting, um, which, you know, you can't really say the same thing for frames, right? Because everyone has different types of molding and, you know, different concepts, especially if you have um, – matting on there like if you're like me and you're working with a lot of white off-white backgrounds if you have a stark white mat it's gonna show it's gonna make the the background look kind of muddy right so this is all done over the well you've already talked to them about the options when they're in the studio but then over the phone you're just really locking in those final details Mm -hmm. of how they want it printed and mounted and everything is that yeah so we yeah we have them think about the size and then we start looking at the mounting. So all the pricing is based off of the size of the print. And then the mountings are modifiers, either double, triple or quadruple the cost, depending on whether they get like acrylic face on the front or not. Um, gotcha. So it's, it's one of those ways you can kind of work people in where, you know, if they want to come in and out at a, like a discounted rate, they can. Um, but if they want to do something that really fits the space, you're not just bamboozling them and trying to trick them with a bunch of upsells. You're, you're really letting them, find a purpose between each different tier in there and letting them design the space. So I think that's where I lend um, the most agency to my clients and allowing them to kind of design their rooms. And uh, they really seem to respond to it. I was just having a quick skim through your website again, um, JB, and there's a really good breakdown on there of how we work. So if you guys are interested in sort of nutting down the the details, a bit more of the steps, check that out because it's super um, easy to follow, which is great for your clients first landing on your page. No wonder nobody really has to call JB. Thanks so much, JB. That was absolutely brilliant. Thanks for having me. It's fun. Thanks for joining us. 
that was JB Shepherd from the Pup Street Studio giving us a wonderful insight into how he evolved his creative paper hat series with rescue dogs into a thriving pet portrait studio that specializes in surreal conceptual artwork. Um, as I just said, the website is amazing and full of fabulous information. So we'll have a link to that and um, anything else that we mentioned in the show notes for this episode. Um, just visit the petphotographersclub.com forward slash podcast forward slash 0404. So next week, guys, we're going to have a live members only episode in the Facebook group. If you're not a pro member of the Pet Photographers Club already, don't forget that you can join today. You'll get your first month free. Club membership gives you access to the mastermind group on Facebook, the fortnightly deep dive, the Q&As, plus we've got discounts and other awesome things from all our guests. And that's all just $10 a month. It also goes a long, long way to helping us support the podcast and keeping it up and running. So head over to the petphotographersclub.com to find out more. And that's everything for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. Um, As always, Caitlin and I wish you all the success in your business. And if you are enjoying the podcast, we would really, really love if you would um, jump onto iTunes and rate and review us to help spread the word about the Pet Photographers Club. Bye for now, guys. Bye.